Well, good evening, everyone. I want to thank um, uh, those of you members who are from Grace Lutheran here in Ely, uh, who are helping give out some snacks and kind of help with some logistics on this, so thank you. Uh, I want to thank the uh, uh, Linda and Will, of course, from the, from the Wilderness Center, and wanted to make sure that uh, everybody gets a chance to exploring and understand that uh, the work that you guys are doing there. Um, so if you're not familiar with the Steger Wil it's the Steger Wilderness Center, correct? Yeah. Um, uh, if you're not familiar with that, get to know it. Uh, there's a lot of good work happening out, uh, out of that space and through those people. Uh, I also wanted to thank um, uh, the community college for helping to make this happen and Dave who's with them. Uh, and then uh, this is made possible through a grant from Lutheran Church of the Good Shepherd out of Duluth. And they came to me and said, how can we continue to develop leadership in these camp staff after they're done with the last campfires of the season? and nurture and give them some tools. Uh, so this is about uh, you as camp staff and uh, helping to uh, provide you with not only some tools and some understanding, but some spark uh, and some fire of leadership. So when you are continuing to follow vocation, you can, uh, you can lean on people and uh, a knowledge bases like, uh, like Will Steger. And so it's spending a little elbow-to-elbow -elbow time. For those of you who are not part of the staff, um, uh, one, we'd love to have you come to camp. Uh, but two, we should know that this staff is going to get to spend some time with Will tonight around the campfire and then stay at his place and then do some work because uh, the best leadership skills, I think, are, are shared when you're doing some work elbow-to-elbow -elbow and building community. So that's what we're going to do as a camp staff with Will tomorrow. So uh, to, to get going, and you don't want to spend time listening to me, I want to thank Will uh, for his time with us and welcome back. Uh, to Minnesota, and um, Will is uh, Will can introduce himself a lot better than I can. Um, but it's been great getting to know you and and following you and and just getting to know you today. Um, thank you, Will, and let's let's just get right into it. Yeah, thanks, Joe, for the intro. Um, we got the custodian coming soon to get the lights down, so not going to be a permanent thing here. I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight, and then. Um, my presentation is, is going to be what I'm calling Life, Life as an Explorer, basically how I got involved as a young kid, and then some of the expeditions I've been on, and I'll explain a little bit more as I go here. Uh, this is where it all began for me, a uh, uh, suburban house in Richfield, which is a suburb of Minneapolis, and um, I had uh, nine brothers and sisters, ten total, and uh, the six boys were on the one bedroom upstairs, four girls down below, one bathroom, one small little kitchen. So kind of got me in shape for living in close quarters with people. And, uh, but it was a great coming from a big family. Uh, we later uh, added on to the, uh, another bathroom and so forth later on. But it, we started at a very humble beginnings. And um, I really have everything to thank to my parents for who I became because my Parents, first of all, they had a great loving relationship, set a good example for my brothers and sisters. But my dad was an entrepreneur, and um, so he raised his kids that way. Um, we, had, we basically didn't have any rules. We, the main rules were we had to have a certain grade point average in school. Uh, we had to stay out of trouble with the law. And then if we wanted to do something, we had to pay for it ourselves. So that was great. Uh, when I was... my book that inspired me as a child. My first book was The Adventures of Huck Finn. And uh, when I first read that, I 
wanted to go down the Mississippi River. And uh, again, I was in a, some of you are familiar with Minneapolis-St. Paul, the Mississippi run, runs between the two cities there. So I always had a fascination with that river. So when I was 12 years old, I told my dad I, was, I wanted to go down, not I wanted to, I told him I was going to go down the Mississippi River in, in a motorboat. He said, sure, you can do it, but you have to have a decent boat. So I started saving my money. I used to caddy, cut lawns. Uh, when I was 13, I bought my first boat, and then I traded it in. And then when I was 15, another trade-in. I had a decent boat, and I ended up going down, recruited my older brother, who was 17. I was number two on the pack order. And uh, so we went down the mist. Going down the river was easy, but coming back up the river was very difficult. Uh, but it was a great thing in 1960, when we were 15, to see the south at that time. Uh, uh, we were always broke. Uh, our money always went into the... Uh, the outboard motor, so people took us in along the way. Uh, and we had a lot of motor trouble, so that was great too, because we met a lot of people through that, spending time. And then in the end, that was my first and last motorized adventure. And uh, what inspired me, uh, where I got most of my uh, materials for my dreams was a National Geographic uh, magazine. Now this is back in the day when there's maybe three, uh, three TV stations, nothing at all like it is right now. Uh, nobody climbed, no one kayaked uh, in the 60s when I was younger. But it was the National Geographic that really gave me the kind of the material that I, uh, wrapped my, the images basically uh, wrapped my, my um, dreams around. And uh, I was really interested and always in climbing. I, ever since I can remember, I climbed everything I could. Uh, you know, trees, houses, whatever. I, I was always up high. And, um, and then when I started climbing, there, was, there wasn't, wasn't anything like a north face. There wasn't a place where you could buy a, a rope or a, any type of hardware, even a carabiner. You know, it wasn't such a thing in Minnesota at that time. So I bought a hemp rope out of the hardware store, checked a book out of the library, Minneapolis Library, about climbing, and uh, started climbing. I, I recruited some friends. And this is on uh, Lake Superior. Some of you probably noticed this if you've been there, Palisade Heads. And we did traverses. And then later we started doing uh, climbing. And my goal was, wasn't necessarily rock climbing. Um, I really wanted to get way into the wilderness, into the very isolated mountains to do first ascents. Uh, mountain type of, it's called mountaineering, where you travel for sometimes 100 miles, and then you set up a base camp, and you do camps as you go up the mountains. And, uh, but in order to do that, um, I really had to get, first of all, good at rock climbing. And my first goal was being able to do an uh, overhang like this here. Uh, this is actually in Colorado. And this is when I was like 18 years old. And then uh, I started wall climbing in Colorado, um, leading climbs. And uh, that's where um, I, I, I came from a humble beginning. And, and I, I never thought myself better than anybody else. You know, I, I had different I was doing different things, but I, I, I did sports. I did the you know, usual things that young people do. Uh, but what really started to separate me, I didn't know it at that, that time, was on climbing, you get to the point where you reach your edge, where you think you're going to fall or you're going to die, and then you have to be absolutely the best you can, physically, mentally, even spiritually. And you, and you get on this edge and you go through that, and you, you get into the present moment. Uh, and it was quite an experience. And then once I experienced that, I wanted, I wanted to experience it more. It wasn't a thrill. You know, it, it took the ropes and that to get to that point. But I really liked challenging 
my, myself like that, where I had to be best. In order to do that, then you had to uh, increase your skills. Uh, almost like a sport, you have to get good at your skills. And once I got better skills, I could do more things with the idea of always heading out into the high mountains like this. And uh, when I was 20 years uh, old, I joined an expedition in the Peruvian Andes. And uh, we did three first ascents over 20,000 feet. And um, this is one of them right here. And the heights, heights for, for me, as long as you were you know, connected real well with a rope, uh, was a really great thing. And then uh, being from Minnesota, of course, the water and the lakes and the rivers, uh, and then also the wilderness here in northern Minnesota had, had a really great impact. Uh, my, my parents never camped out a day in their life. You know, none of this came, but it was, I had that freedom to do that. Um, I took, I took um, not canoeing, but I started kayaking. And I got this idea about kayaking from, again, National Geographic. But back in the early 60s, nobody kayaked. People didn't even know. They thought, okay, that's what an Eskimo boat or what is it? Nobody even knew what it looked like. But for myself, the kayak seemed like the best, uh, best way of traveling in the wilderness because you, for uh, one, in rapids like this, uh, you can roll if you tip over, whereas in a canoe, you, 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 know, you, you totally fill up right, water right away. And then with a kayak, you can cover large distances. So, um, and when I was 19, uh, I recruited a friend of mine, Ole Olson, a kid I went to high school with, and we left Jasper, Alberta here in the southern Canadian Rockies. And we, that summer we kayaked uh, 3,000 miles north. We went up the um, Athabasca Slave McKinsey River to the Arctic Ocean. And then uh, the problem, we had to get back to school. So we crossed the mountains, the Richardson Mountains, which was the northern extension of the uh, northern northernmost extension of the Rockies. So we crossed the Richardson's and then down the other side, and then we kayaked another 600 miles to get back into Alaska. And then from there, uh, we hitchhiked back. And hitchhiking back, we always split split up because it's hard to get a ride with two. And the, the ride, I've, I've hitchhiked back from Alaska five times when I was younger. Uh, 4,400 miles, it usually takes maybe nine, nine days, but it's always a, a, an incredible adventure. Because up in the Alaskan Highway, a lot of times you're stuck for hours waiting for a ride, and you know, you're in these magnificent mountains and rivers and rapids all around. Um, so it was, that 19-year-old trip was a real coming of age to me. Uh, ever since I was a child, since I can remember, I wanted to live in the wilderness. I wanted to build my old cabin. Uh, I wanted to uh, clear land by hand for gardens. Uh, I really wanted to be self-sufficient, and today you call it sustainability. But that was always a core core value. I'd have to say. I think I think it's a core value of being American is being self-reliant. Uh, you know, doing your own thing and, and working for yourself, like my father did. That was that was something I as, I aspired to with the freedom of that. So when I was 19, I, I that long hitchhike back, I decided to go up north and try to find some wilderness property. And I thought there'd be property for sale all over. So our, our first thing we did is got a car, and I went with my older brother, Tom, the one that went down the Mississippi River. Uh, we first checked out the, the wilderness north of uh, Lake Superior. Again, thinking that would be for sale sites, but there wasn't anything for sale. So, you know, we were, we were, we'd knock, knock on doors, literally knock, uh, go to the bars, motels, Where's this wilderness property? So we kind of bounced around a bit, and we came up Highway 1. We stopped at a resort. And the guy said, well, go to Ely, Minnesota. There's a realtor by, by the name of Bill Trigg. Talk to him. So we did it. 
And then from there, I found exactly what I, I was looking for. I, I don't have a pointer here, but this little small lake here, which we, we'll be on here in a couple, couple uh, hours, I bought 30 acres for $1,000. It was um, three miles from the nearest road. And I was looking for something, uh, ideally, what I was looking for is exactly what I found, is where you, you have a landing on a bigger lake, and then you, you cross the big lake a couple miles, and then you make a portage, and then you cross the small lake that you're in. And I thought that would be the best way of moving in materials by water, and then later by dog team. And, um, and the, reason, the, the reason I found that land, or how I found it, is I, I had that dream. I had that desire. I, I always be able to, um, you know, your, your thoughts are energy. You create your reality by how you think. And, um, but my intention was, I had an intention. I was knocking on doors, looking for this land, and eventually, because of that, I found it. It isn't like all of a sudden it kind of somebody said, okay, here's your land. Uh, it always takes that intent in anything, especially if it's your dream. Uh, it takes your intent. So I bought the land, and then uh, I was a city kid. And, um, you know, in our, our household, it'd be, you're lucky to find a hammer or a screwdriver. And, uh, again, my dad didn't have any carpentry skills, but I had... Um, a desire as a builder and a designer since a child. And again, the log cabin was, uh, uh, was the dream, and uh, building a log cabin was relatively simple. I saw a lot of cabins. I, I got a book called Wilderness Cabin, How to Build It, you know, and then bought a chainsaw and learned, uh, you know, log on log, and then uh, gra gradually then I, I built up uh, my skills. And, but this is, I, I still, you'll see this cabin today. I still live in this, this cabin's been enlarged a little bit, but it still is the home. And then, this was when I was 19, and I, and I moved up north when I was 25. My goal was to get my education in the city, and uh, I always had, uh, my vocation in life has been, uh, as a teacher. Uh, I always knew that since I can remember, so I, I didn't have to think, okay, what am I going to do, so forth. Um, I was a really poor student in class. I, I had some, I'm um, left-handed, so my brain is wired a little differently. So I, I had trouble with math, grammar, and, and uh, math, grammar, and spelling. It was really tough, uh, especially in college. If you, in these essay tests, if you put a comma in the wrong place, you deduct already from a B to a C. I mean, it was, it was a brutal academic life that I had to go through. But, you know, I wanted to be the teacher. And uh, so I, it was important to me to get that college degree. I, I ended up majoring in geology, biology, ecology, actually. I studied glaciology. And I got a teaching certificate uh, undergraduate, which allowed me to teach. And then my goal also was to teach for three years. And I taught three years uh, for a draft deferment. And, uh, and then I got my master's degree in education. And then when I was 25, I finally had my credentials. And then I moved to the wilderness. And uh, when I moved up here, um, I wasn't going to go back to the city to make a living. That was it. I had $1,000 in my pocket. And I knew I could make a living somehow up here. So I, I moved up. And, uh, and then when you're in, you're in the wilderness, off-road. Off we have a road, and that's how you're... You won't have to canoe in and go through the bugs here. We're going to just drive in afterwards. So, but before, I, would, I lived 25 years off-road. But when you cut a tree down for your log cabin, you don't have a bobcat or a machinery that's going to pick it up. You know, you, you uh, have a lot of friends. And, um, and, I, and I also, another thing that was very important to me was a community. 
Because here I was 25, living in the woods. Okay, how about your social life? Yeah. Okay, how do you make a living? Uh, but my social life, well, it all happened. And then well, I'll talk about that in a second. But we um, made, made gardens. I made my cabin first, the sauna second, and then cleared land for gardens. It took three years to build up the soil. But we had incredibly rich, uh, rich uh, soil. It's a good, good uh, environment for growing here. It's not really good for tomatoes, but all the root crops, everything you need in the winter grows here real well. I had an ice house, a root cellar after that. And um, I lived on $2,000 a year for 12 years. And, um, and, you know, we lived quite well. And uh, I, I taught again. I taught these skills um, for people that would come up uh, that wanted to learn the, gar the gardening, uh, woodworking, and so forth. I taught that. But it was really the dogs that changed my, li my life. Um, I was very fortunate that when I came up. I worked the first two winters at Outward Bound. Uh, they, they were a young school there, and it was the first time they ran the winter courses. And for myself, it was a paradigm. Because uh, first of all, in Outward Bound, I was with peers, people that climbed, kayaked. Uh, I, never had, I never had that type of a community before. And uh, also, it inter introduced me to the outdoor education. Uh, I didn't know that type of thing existed, like Outward Bound. And uh, so I worked there for two years, two summers. I, it gave me six months to clear land. Uh, but as usual, that was my, actually my last job I ever had. That was 1972 when I left Outward Bound. So I, I left Outward Bound um, um, because I had my own idea of doing my own school. So I said it's goodbye. It was very wonderful. Uh, atmosphere there. They didn't have dogs there, by the way, and I, I thought I would run a, a, a winter school with dogs. I'd never been on a dogs, dog team before, so I got dogs. I leased out some dogs, and then, you know, I learned. And uh, I started building up a school. I used to lecture in the city uh, in the fall. I would contact a lot of people. Uh, it, was, it was a u unique time uh, being young uh, in the early 70s. This is during the hippie days. It was called the Back to the Earth Movement, where millions and millions of young people just split the city, moved to the country. Uh, it, it was really quite a, quite a remarkable time. And then at Outward Bound, a number of my close friends started their own schools, climbing and so forth. And then I would contract. They would have a summer programs, and nobody had a winter program. So I would contract, do contract courses and so forth. So I was able to make a living that way. I didn't have a car for 12 years. You know, I, I met the people at the end of the, end of the road, the three-mile uh, three trail in. And um, this is up in Basswood Lake. These are um, medical interns from St. Luke's uh, uh, Hospital in Duluth. Uh, the young doctors there, the doctors to be, wanted to learn about hypothermia. I said, okay, we'll go out in the river here and see what happens. And, uh, so I was, and that worked out quite well. I still know a lot of these people. But... Um, and then um, I start branching out after five, six years. I, you know, through trial and a lot of error, I ended up starting to get a really good breed of dogs. And then I start at the end of the season. I would, uh, we, it's just a 30-hour drive up to Thompson, Man Manitoba, uh, which is at the end of the road. And then the railroad goes through there, and we would hop the railroad with our dogs, and we'd go up to Churchill on the Hudson Bay. So we started with smaller expeditions, and then gradually I started doing major expeditions. And then in 82, basically, uh, I gave my school to a friend of mine, Paul Shirky, who runs a, a program called Wintergreen now. And I, you know, I, that, that, I, 
learned a lot, and I, I gave it all away, uh, and I, I wanted to do major expeditions, and that's what I did. Um, I'll show you one of the expeditions I did in 1989-90. Uh, we crossed Antarctica. Uh, this is the route we did. Antarctica had never been crossed by uh, dogs or people. Uh, it was what Shackleton, you probably heard of Shackleton, that was his dream, to cross Antarctica. Uh, but their ship was caught in the ice, and they never actually got on land. And his route was a kind of a, not, I wouldn't say short route, but it was, it was at right angles to that red line of 1,700 miles. But I purposely took the longest possible route, 3,742 miles. Uh, it turned out to be that long. Uh, in order to do that, we had to travel in the win two winters. We left in midwinter of the first winter, started way up on the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, just uh, south, uh, Ar uh, Argentina, Chile is about 400 miles north of there. And we traveled on uh, the Larson A and B ice shelf, uh, which is now since then disintegrated. Uh, we traveled in the winter across the um, Antarctic mountain range, a uh, whole uh, 700 miles of mountains. No one had ever done it in the winter. And we had 60 days of storms. And um, it was just uh, unbelievable that we were able to survive. And then we got onto the plateau which is 3,000 miles across, and that's at 10,000 to 11,000 feet. We, made the, we left on July 26th and made the, North Pole, the South Pole uh, December 12th, and then at the far end we reached uh, Murney, the Russian station there, on uh, March, March 12th. So, uh, so I'm going to show you some pictures. This was the international team that I put together. Uh, my partner on the far right uh, you're right, uh, which is in orange, Dr. Jean-Louis Etienne, from French physician from Paris, France. And uh, I led an uh, expedition to the North Pole in 1986, unsupported. No one had ever done the un unsupported uh, to the North Pole. And uh, everyone said it was po impossible. And we, I put together a team with Paul Shirky of, of uh, eight people, 50 dogs. And on that expedition, we were 200 miles out on the ice. A uh, month out on the ice, and I literally ran into John Louis who was t traveling solo. Now, the size of the United States, there was just our two parties out there. And at that time, then I, I met in this tent. I brought a map, and we were both doing. We were, we were doing a personal best to see if we could do something that had never been done. And uh, I had the map with this line drawn on it, and I showed him this was going to do next. And he looked at it, and he said, uh, "Wheel, I think you'll need a doctor for this trip." But, you know, we, we discussed why are we going to do this trip, this, all this energy. But we knew we didn't, we being, you know, explorers, we kept up to, uh, up, up, up speeded on polar politics and so forth. But the Antarctic, Antarctica is protected by what's called the Antarctic Treaty. The Antarctic Treaty is the most remarkable international treaty or document that's ever been uh, signed. It was signed in... 1960, um, during the Cold War, and all the countries, Russia, China, all the competing countries that had missiles pointed at each other, signed on board. And basically, it set Antarctica um, uh, aside for science only, uh, international cooperation, no military, no nuclear, uh, open inspection, no territory. And, that, and then when they signed that, they, they had a, a, a clause in it that in, 30 years later, in 1990, they could, they could review the treaty and make any changes in it. So right before this North Pole expedition in 86, the treaty nations had met behind closed doors and signed a formal uh, document called the Wellington Convention to open Antarctica up for exploration for minerals. 
which would have been the, the end of Antarctica. And uh, so that's when we met in that tent. And we, we agreed that we would do this expedition. It would be international. We'd do six people, 30 dogs, three dog teams. And we would draw world attention to the need to uh, preserve Antarctica rather than exploit it. And we needed all 27 treaty nations. I mean, if one abstained, uh, we wouldn't do it. So that's what we set out to do. So there was a purpose behind the expedition. But the, the actual expedition was was unbelievable. We, I had two, uh, two uh, glaciologists in the top center, uh, uh, purple, Dr. Chin Daho from uh, China, a very world-renowned uh, glaciologist. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in 19, uh, 2008. Kneeling here in the purple is uh, Victor Boyarsky, uh, Dr. Boyarsky, uh, uh, glaciologist from uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, this is during the, when the USSR during the Cold War. And then on the top left there is uh, Jeff Summers from Great Britain, who worked in Antarctica for six years, and then Kizil Fanatsu from Japan, who also has incredible credentials. We bred a special breed of dogs for this uh, expedition, uh, really tough, big dogs based out, out of the Inuit dog. Uh, we bred wolves, Siberians, uh, over a period of time. But we ended up with about an 80, 90-pound dog with a really good racing attitude, but a very thick body, thick fur, strong paws, an animal that can survive in a storm at 50 below zero. So uh, it was really the dogs. We put so much time always into our dogs. Um, and, uh, and, and this is one reason why we were successful in this expedition. You can see the thick coat there. Their guard fur is, you know, almost eight inches. And then there's an inner coating of really light fur, like a down, the, down in a duck. And that gives them the super insulation. They can sleep on ice. Uh, they can sleep on ice in a 60-mile-an-hour wind at 40 below and still. They're the toughest, toughest animal pound for pound uh, in existence, uh, even more so than a wolverine. Uh, we was international, so we flew down in a Russian uh, USSR plane that landed in Minneapolis. Uh, uh, that time, there, there was never a, a Soviet plane that ever went in the United States airspace, and we got, somehow got permission for that. And then uh, we landed on King George Island off the coast of the peninsula. And then we flew in with uh, these twin otters. This is a two-engine uh, turboprop plane. Uh, it's a workhorse of both the Arctic and Antarctica. It's an incredible plane. It, it carries has a payload of about 2,000 pounds. And uh, I've been on these in both poles and uh, in the Arctic. And uh, it was the only, only, only plane like, it, like this. This was our first night uh, on the Antarctic Peninsula. We're on the Larsen A ice shelf here. Um, we're still in the in the polar night. Um, we would the sun would be down for well, it was, the sun never came up, but we would have about 18 hours of blackness and then six hours of like a twilight like this, and then the sun then it would get dark again. So we were we were still in, still in the winter. July is winter down there, and then. Um, and this is uh, one of the mountain ranges. We cross about 12 mountain ranges. This is the first one. Um, and we're on the Larsen B ice shelf here. This disintegrated in 2002, all ocean now. But this, on the other side of this mountain, was unknown country, unknown, zero. Nobody's ever been there in the winter, no maps. And this has always been my dream all my life, was uh, heading out with an expedition in this case, with a well-trained team, not knowing what's ahead, 
but you're ready for whatever comes up, you adapt and just figure it out. You know, lots of tricks up your sleeve. Uh, that's what I, uh, th that I've always aspired to all my life. I mean, I just returned from a 70-day solo uh, up in the far northern, Northwest Territories in Nunavut uh, 10 days ago. And uh, that was extremely rugged country uh, called the Area of Hardship and Starvation. <laughs> and uh, right, I want to go there, check that out. And, um, and no, no, you can't get in there with a canoe, uh, dog sled, snowmobile, real wild. All the animals here, most of them have never seen people. Well, this is, you know, pretty much what I've done with my life is I, uh, I, like, to, I like to test the limits. Uh, expeditions are great, and I, I've done a number of projects, uh, nonprofits also in education. Um, this is how we traveled. We had um, 10 dogs. We had three dog teams, 10 dogs each, and three sleds. And uh, so there would be two people per, per sled. And then on that sled would be all the... Food, supplies, emergency gear, first aid, everything for two people that, that would, you know, take care of the dogs and the people. Because there, uh, there could be a, a situation where you could lose a sled in a crevasse or two sleds in a crevasse. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. And then, if you, I don't know if you can see it, but in the back of that sled, you can see top of a bicycle wheel. That's our odometer. This is before the GPS. Odometer would give us... Uh, uh, Jeff Summers was our navigator. So the odometer, of course, would give us our distance. So Jeff would, would, would he would take note of, let's say, if we went north, let's say, three, uh, 340 degrees for two miles, and then we went 330 miles, he would mark this down and then ch chart this out uh, on, on, on his uh, notes and so forth. And that's, that's how we traveled. It was actually quite, quite accurate. In these storms, we, didn't, we couldn't see the sun. Uh, you know, we had 60 days of just you know, unbelievable stuff. It's, it's amazing that we survived it. And then we, we went along the life shelves for 300 miles, and now we're getting up into the elevation. And then we had uh, some mishaps, as you always do. Uh, I mean, real adventure is unknown. You don't know. But we, we descended two uh, mountain paths, really steep, and we hit... We had first had snow that had, had friction to it, and then we hit ice, snow, ice, and the sleds just, you know, took off. And two of them flipped over. Fortunately, nobody got hurt. Um, this one was, we were able to put back together, but the one I had was uh, broken half. And we made two little sleds out of it. And, and ironically enough, I probably shouldn't have named it Shackleton because it broke in half, and this is like 100 miles from where his ship was crushed. So... So, but anyway, and then here we are with uh, little pygmy uh, sleds. Now, the problem here is the sleds are 16 feet long for a reason because you can, you can skirt over crevasses. And, and when you're over crevasses, it spreads your weight out. But now when you have half of that, it's almost like a bowling ball. All the weight is there. So we eventually were able to trade off for another sled, but... Uh, we were in the worst crevasses here of the whole expedition when this happened. All of us had climbing skills. Um, uh, some, of the, some of the members were really, really great climbers, and uh, we trained that way too. And then uh, crevasses. Crevasses were the biggest danger. Uh, fortunately, it, they weren't as often. Crevasses, of course, form when you're, when you're a steep uh, incline in a mountain pass. So, so when uh, the ice flows down steeply, it flows um, 
faster in the top and it cracks open. So it, you only have it in your decline. The, on the ice cap, which was majority of the trip, probably 3,400 miles of it, we didn't have the, this type of a problem. But this was really dangerous stuff. And because uh, you could lose, you can see this thing. Some of these things were bottomless, and, and you don't know. You don't in the in a whiteout. You can't in a clear day. You can maybe see a gray, slight coloring of the uh, of a crevasse, but uh, but on a whiteout, which was most of the time, you couldn't see. It's it almost like going blind down a city street with all the manhole covers open or the person hole covers up open. It was like that, and, and uh, we had a, a number, I think I have it, yeah, a number of dogs went in the crevasse. Uh, we were on skis, so that spread our weight out, but the dogs had their, all their weight on their little paws. Uh, they were, again, um, roped in with their tug line, and, uh, and this is not in their DNA. They, they, they can sense thin ice, because that's how they evolve, but a, a void in a crevasse where all of a sudden they're suspended. Uh, and what they do is um, they just freak out. They just totally freeze like this. And then when you bring them up, uh, as soon as they get on top, they're like normal again. They start fighting with their neighbors and the whole thing that, that these dogs do. And uh, it's as if they don't even have a memory of it. You know, people are, if a person falls in a crevasse, they're, you know, whoa, you know, they're going like this and talking about it. Dogs just uh, back to normal. And um, this is a dog's eye view here of Antarctica. A lot of times, we, Jeff Summers was the best climber. He would descend, and then we would rope, we'd pull the, rope, the dog up. We had a way of up the dog, up the dog, whole, you know, we'd, we'd have this way of yanking this thing up, and then Jeff would, would uh, Jumar up like that. And then uh, this was, uh, finally we topped, we had a 120-mile glacier that took us from sea level up to 8,000 feet, and now, we, now, we're, now we're in the real Antarctica, this is when all the cold weather occurred. Um, and we're just inter introducing, introduction to their, this is actually the first whiteout, the first major storm uh, that we had. And um, at first we tried to wait these storms out, but um, you know, usually two, two days, three days. But the problem was is that the way we did our resupplies or logistics is that uh, Jeff went down with the Russians uh, the summer before, and in real fickle weather. I mean, even summer is not good weather. But Jeff, they laid out food caches every 250, 300 miles, all the way to the South Pole for the first 2,000 miles. And then when we started like this, we were totally independent of any, any, any airplanes. We didn't have to depend on it. We had a 10-watt radio. Our, our base camp was in Chile, uh, 1,000 miles away. And uh, so we were, we were basically very remote. And on this radio, you know, we would go a week, 10 days sometimes with a blackout. So there was no way anyone could really get to us. But we had these food caches. But the problem was is that we lost three of these food caches. And uh, very fortunate for us, we lost every other one or else we wouldn't have survived. So we would have these horrendous weather. I mean, I, I got a poster out there like this. And this is like, a, you know, it's 50 below here. And it's windy, and uh, and uh, your next food cache is a hundred miles up, and you got four days of food or something like that, and uh, and then we would we would we would go from one food cache we found, and then the next one we couldn't find, and then we would make the decision: do we stick around, uh, look for food, or and starve to death if we don't, or do we go for it? So we always automatically went for it. 
And uh, so, and then we were on severe rations, and we had to travel. There was no question about it. Regardless of the weather, we had to travel. Regardless, we had to move. We had to keep moving. And we couldn't slow down at all. You couldn't, if you, you really had to push, and, and it was really, really, um, we were very, very much a couple of times right in the end. The dogs were freezing to death. The people were starting to go. Uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, this is uh, our lunch break, um, which was a miserable time. The, uh, lunch break, we would, we would uh, travel five hours, take a half an hour break, and fi- travel another five. And in uh, the half an hour, first 10 minutes is okay, but uh, we, it was mandatory. We'd take a half an hour off the rest of the dogs. And then you'd start getting really cold sitting like that. And, and, uh, but it was, just, uh, it was just very zen. And then in these storms, um, a lot of times these the sleds were buried up to the handlebars. These were what's called area depositions. That means a lot of snow that just keeps piling and piling and piling and never melts. And that's how we lost two of the, two of the caches were put down in areas of deposition. We had a 12-foot flag, but they just simply, they probably had snow, you know, 20 feet over them. One of the caches we felt, the other one we felt that the pilots made an error on the location. Uh, but regardless, but so in the morning we would have to get up and spent an hour and a half shoveling. And then, and then some of the dogs that were near the sled would be buried. The dogs were, dogs were fine. Um, they curl up, and then they're totally covered by the snow. And it's just like on a cold, cold morning, pulling your down blanket over your head. So they're, they just patiently wait. Uh, in the bad storms, if we're waiting it out, uh, we don't feed the dogs because they have to stay still. They jump up. Uh, for something, but they won't unless there's food. They'll get up and then the hole freezes and, and instead of a protection, they're on a, t- a platform. And the dogs aren't like people. They can go a day, two days, three days without eating. They just curl up and hunker down. And then we, then we feed them up. They're like people too, not unlike people, because you can feed them a lot in that lot, like a wolf. Uh, they do a wolf kill. But this type of dog, you feed them a lot up and then they're good for two, three days. And just because they miss a meal, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, like it would be for a human being. And this is like the n- normal storm here. Um, uh, putting up your tent, you're shoving snow. Uh, a couple times I was blown over. But I was blown over and I got up and, you know, where's the tent? And uh, it, it, was, it was that uh, that type of a situation. And uh, it put us in real touch with, uh, we didn't talk about our, 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 our dilemma or how tough it was at the time. We did talk a little bit afterwards, but it if you ever read the story about Scott, uh, uh, the race to the South Pole, Scott and Amundsen. Amundsen did dogs and did everything right. Scott, the Englishman, with a team of five, they hauled. They tried horses that they froze to death, and then they hauled. And they died on the long, on, along the way. Uh, very similar to what we They died. Three of them, two of them died, and then the last three died 12 miles from a ton of food. And they just didn't quite make it. And we were in this situation, and, and uh, it was just... Really put us in a lot of, and in these situations you, uh, in an, and real hardship to me is not that big of a deal unless you're freezing to death. And a lot of times in the expeditions, it's just really tough. But you know what hardship? You're not losing your fingers or it's not threatening your life, and being exhausted, it's not a big deal. Uh, or going without food for a period of time, um, you know, you can last for a, a, quite a while. But for myself, it really puts me in touch with. Um, 
the people that are, are less fortunate in the in the planet, about half of the people almost, you know, people that they don't have the luxuries we do. They don't have the food. Uh, but it's really a the thing I get out of it is really compassion. My mind mind turns that way, not in a sober way, uh, sober way, but it's something I I you know I, I think about. I think about other the the people that are uh, really having tough time, and uh, it's a great thing. Um, this is a, how we travel real close on, so we wouldn't get lost. It's hard keeping your sleds together like this, but you know we learned how to do it. Um, this is how we dressed, uh, almost like space people. You know, we're dressed up. Nothing, flesh freezes. And the other problem is the, the ozone hole. There is, there is a, there's no ozone in the air. The ozone protects us from ultraviolet. Without ozone, everything fries. But there was, any, there was no ozone, zero, zip. So it was almost like being in outer space. We were getting a direct shot of ultraviolet. Uh, but that was relatively simple. We, we just we were covered up anyway. And the dogs were adapted because they, they, had grew, they grew up in the high Arctic regions. Um, but we, we knew that this, we would have the ozone thing, but what we did in our clothing, we went so far as having our, the uh, stitching, the, the thread in our clothing was ozone resilient. Because you could, you know, you're traveling in something place that nobody's done. We didn't know it was going to happen. And if, let's say if we didn't do the ozone thread, well, you could have a situation, all of a sudden the arm off your jacket falls off or something. But you, ha you have to kind of plan on these things. Um, this is one of the caches uh, that we found in October. You know, just uh, uh, after, it was always a great thing when, we, when you're, this is the, after losing a cache and we find a cache and then we feel real secure for about a week. And then we're down to rationing, not knowing if we're going to make the next one. And uh, this is one cache that we barely found. Just the top of this, uh, the flag was out. It was actually between two snow drifts. And we dug down 12 feet. This was an was, was a area of deposition, a lot of snow, but a, an area of extreme winds. The, the snow was almost concrete hard. We had to literally chip our way down in order to get to where it was left, you know, six months before that. Um, there is providence some, uh, sometimes. Um, I experience, you know, it's, it's a very, in some ways, it's an experience you don't really want to have, but sometimes you get an experience uh, where, uh, you know, like, what I, in the worst time we had, when it didn't look like we were going to survive, Daho, the Chinese doctor, uh, glaciologist, he was in my tent, he was having a really hard time, he was getting sick and just exhausted. But we had to travel, and I was taking care of him, and, uh, and it was nice to have, I thought, it's nice to take care of somebody in this situation because it takes your head, mind off your own situation. But um, and during at this time, I, I just, I, I survived for a while just on hope. And, and that wasn't a very comfortable thing. Hope is like when everything is dark and there's a little light and you, you, you zero in on that light and you just hang on to that light. And uh, you you just keep hanging on to it, because that's and um, and sure enough, we were we were able to survive. I also felt we had millions and millions of, of school kids around the world following us. This is before the internet, and I felt that what we were doing, I just had a sense that we wouldn't die because what we were doing was really for the good. 
these, these are just some things that you know you think about because um, you have a lot of time to think when you're traveling in a 10-hour day what do you think about what do you think about in the tent there's nothing to read you're alone with your mind and also because of the wind and you're international English was the was the language that we used uh, and uh, and we and everybody spoke it to various degrees but uh, you're isolated it's only your your tent mate that you have a, a person to talk to. And we'd, we'd switch partners every six or seven weeks so to, to break up clicks, and, and, to, and so there's some variety. Uh, but so it's actually uh, quite isolated. Uh, we, were, we really came together. We did a, a real uh, historical first uh, for a training the year before. We crossed Greenland unsupported 1,600 miles. And um, it was through that, and we trained in Ely for two years two winners, and uh, so we were real, a real tight group to begin with, but uh, we really bonded in these storms. We, everybody took care of each other. It was really a mutual love and a mutual respect uh, that we had for each other, and that's really uh, what it was all about surviving. And, um, and, and I think it's, it was an advantage. Uh, international teams, I've led them for almost 20 years. Uh, they're great because you can't if you have all Americans or one culture, if this was an all-American team, I'd guarantee it probably would have fallen apart. But when you have multi-cultures, you don't get into the, the, the head trip type thing when you're with your, you talk politics or you never talk about that, but in our own culture, you, you have a tendency of getting too much here in the lofty. Whereas us, we traveled more through a sense of feeling. Um, and uh, we were mature. We had an average age of 40. Uh, all of us, you know, we were pretty much established. We're still doing the same thing that we were doing. Uh, so we, there wasn't competition amongst us stuff. I think the maturity had, was, a, was a big part of it too. But the international part of it was, that was one of the greatest things in my life was working in international teams, especially on this one. And then... Let's see here. We broke out of the storms finally. We survived. We got up to a higher elevation, and we got away from the, the coast when we were within a, you know, closer to the coast is when we were getting the storms, and then we got the storms, uh, the super storms came off the plateau. And then as we got higher, we got into the Antarctic summer, which was four months of 24-hour light. Um, we, our warmest temperature was 30, 13 below, which was a record warm temperature at 11,000 feet. But the summer was, uh, the, the light was easy because we, we had trained in Greenland for this. We were way behind schedule. Um, some of our the Russians wanted to pull us off and all this stuff was going on. But once we got on the uh, good weather where we had now four months of travel, we then traveled 10-hour days, 10 straight days, one day off. And we were able to do that continually for four months. And, and we worked up this system in Greenland that you can do 10-hour days, 10 days, one day off. The people and the dogs can go pretty much indefinitely as long as they're fed. If you do 11 days, you burn yourself out. The, the worst thing you can do is burn your dogs out, push them too hard, because once they're burned out, it takes a long time to get, get their strength back. And sometimes you, on an expedition, you won't get your strength back. And same thing with people. Uh, it's typical at the end of an expedition, you're really exhausted, you're hungry for three, four weeks afterwards. But if you get exhausted midway, if you burn yourself out, it's like the long, long marathon, day after day after day. The, the diet has to be perfect. Everything has this rhythm you get, the absolute rhythm, which I really like. Then you're facing with monotony, which I, I don't mind monotony. It's, 
I like the kind of like the Zen atmosphere, the med meditative thing. And uh, so this is what we face then for the next uh, next uh, next four months. We travel. This is the South Pole from a northern perspective. And um, and there's a there's an American base at the uh, South Pole. And uh, so we were there for. We took three days off there and socialized and had fun. And then we left uh, this bottom part of the, of the line there. Uh, this was called the area of inaccessibility. Uh, it was an 800-mile area that no one had ever been in. No one had ever crossed because it's in, it was inaccessible. And uh, so that's what, our, our next challenge. And on the other side of the area of inaccessibility was a Russian base called Vostok, which is the, at that time was the most uh, um, interior uh, uh, base. It was at 11,000 feet. It had the world record cold wet temperature, 129 below. So, but in order to get to Vostok, we had to cross the area of inaccessibility. Now, um, and it was just totally straight like this. I mean, this is all, all it was, was flat. It wasn't anything to discover. It was just a high... You know, the ice here is uh, almost, uh, two miles thick here, or, or goes actually uh, low, uh, lower than that in places. But what we did, we had, we had an, uh, the Twin Otter was based uh, at the South Pole. Now, the, the radio didn't work. It wasn't dependable because of the northern lights, southern lights, and also the clear weather. There's a lot of interference with, with the atmosphere. So what we did is we, we um, made these snow cairns, snow people, uh, every, every two kilometers, we'd stop and make a six-foot snow person. And then at a given time and, and, a, and a given date, the plane would take off, would fly 4,000 feet above the surface. And looking down then, they, they could see these shadows, like this, all aligned. So they follow these shadows. Our last resupply was the same distance from Minneapolis to uh, uh, Denver. And those were all done by these little... Little, little Karens like that. So we used this system to connect in. And, and if, you know, if we ever lost there, that, it would be the great, uh, you know, mystery of the exploration. You know, there's no way anybody could get, get into there. There wasn't uh, just our plane, which had a limited range. And this, this was the uh, last resupply. Um, I'll tell you something about technology in, in the polar regions, in the cold regions. When you're depending on uh, technology, it's like, going out on a limb of a tree and then cutting the limb off with you on it. And uh, this was a, a real important moment for me because we relied on this plane and, uh, and there was no guarantees at all, but this was the final, final resupply. And then when we got down to the Russian side, we had the Russian support. Um, we had a Frisbee that we used. Um, um, this would be, you know, uh, let's say 25 minutes into the noon break. We'd throw it around to get warm, but also the dogs were always fascinated by this thing that was flying around. And then uh, the sobering thing happened. Uh, when we reached Vostok, we still had another 1,000 miles. Um, and we were now, the, the winter, uh, the second winter was st starting to set in. We were, we were losing a, a centigrade uh, temperature a day. That's like a degree and a half. I mean, the temperature was starting to go and I remember the first time the sun set, and we were in the coldest place of the planet. Uh, and it was, it was quite remarkable. It was quite an experience. It, it, it nicked. It nicked. It didn't go way down. But the sun all around was getting, it was getting lower as it, as it went around. 
slowly lower. And, um, and then before long, uh, we were starting to get into the darkness. We were in 60 below weather, uh, super cold, and uh, really beautiful, but uh, uh, sobering. But it was, it was just something else to experience this at this temperature. And uh, the beauty of the star is always clear. Uh, and, then, and then we're getting into the real darkness. I don't know, have you ever studied Orion, the constellation? Okay. I'm an amateur astronomer, but in the southern hemisphere, I just cannot figure the things out. I, I just, I get such a headache looking, trying to figure out what I'm looking at. I'm always attuned to the surroundings in the north, and that's how I navigate. But in the south, it was just very difficult. I, I never quite adjusted to it. And then this is coming down um, to the Indian Ocean. Uh, this is our last couple days here. Um, I remember the first time, we, we were about 40 miles out, and, and as the ice, ice uh, cap descends, it, it's undulating like this, gradual. And we came up on one of these undulations on the crust of it, and we saw the Indian Ocean for the first time. It was, it was just in, incredible. It was kind of a steel blue. There were huge icebergs there, icebergs, you know, miles across. And the, and the, and the uh, light reflected off the ocean. And we all gathered up. We, no, nobody even, even talked. We all gathered, and actually we put our arms around each other, and we just looked at this amazing thing. And here we were. We had, we'd actually made it. Um, we were on the planet Earth. Uh, Antarctica, Scott, who perished, uh, he was the, la and the, the, uh, the three men that died right near, near the last cache. Um, he was the last uh, to die, and he kept his journal of everything that went on. And these, the Scott's expeditions always gets a lot of criticism from the armchair explorers. But if you do read their journals, um, to me it's, it's, it's uh, almost like reading a Bible, the way they took care of each other and how they self-sacrificed each other. It was unbelievable. I mean, I don't even know if I could do that myself. And you never would see that in this type of culture that we live in today and how they, how they did it. But Scott was the last to go in his last sentence was, this is an awful place. And I remember reading that before this expedition. I thought, how could Scott say that about Antarctica? You know, Antarctica is cool as can be. And, you know, if you take an apple and you cut it in half, that little thin red skin, that's Antarctica. That's the coast of Antarctica. And that's our impression of Antarctica. And it is spectacular. I've been on the coast a number of times. Penguins, seals, everything, whales, most beautiful, everything, but that, that core, that white core is the rest. That where nobody's ever been gone. You know, between the, Mawson, uh, the Amundsen, Scott, and there was another expedition at that time, Mawson, 13 men went into the interior, six returned. And that's, that's how Antarctica was. There was once we were taking a lunch break, a uh, piece of paper or something blue. I, I, you know, uh, kind of reflex, I ran after it, grabbed it. I turned around and there was no sled. Everything was, it was white out. And I mean, I went up, up wind and I found it. But, but Antarctica was just, it always tried to kill, you know, it was always, it had no heart, no soul, no spirit. It was super cold. 
you know, human beings don't belong there. But when we saw this, our Indian Ocean, it was like, yeah, we were on this planet. And then uh, we had, uh, I don't have a picture of this, but on our very last night, we were 16 miles from the end. Uh, we had the film crew with us. The Russian support was there. Uh, and that n night, a huge storm came up. Uh, it was 80 below, about 300 miles back of us in the higher elevation, 80 below. And the ocean was still open. So you had this latent moisture, warm, cold, and they collided. And it was this enormous amount of snowfall. It wasn't super cold like the uh, peninsula, but it, it was just amazing. So we, we waited it out that day, and then Kazel, the Japanese guy, went out to feed his dogs. Uh, routine, you know, 3 o'clock. It was stormy. You couldn't see anything. Uh, but in our, in our camp where we were at, you have, you have your ante radio antenna. You have dogs staked here and there. You have lines. Um, and then anything in between. If, I'm, if my tent's here and the dogs are there, we, we stick uh, skis up about every 12 feet because you go from one ski to another. So Kazel went out. He, had, he didn't even have boots on. He went Gore-Tex socks and just going to feed the dogs. So he fed his dogs. And then he went to come back, and he was going from one ski to another. He made a very slight error, because when you go from one ski, you always watch your back ski. You always keep your eye on that ski as you go forward. He just walked straight, and then the bad storms, they have a tendency of being bad, and then all of a sudden, you know, you can't see anything at all, and they loosen up a little bit. Uh, and, you know, he lost this ski, and he turned around, and that other ski was gone. So he sat for... A long time and then he did did the biggest mistake of all when you get lost you stand still but he thought well I'll walk because it you know why, why sit here I'll find the dogs and but in that little slice he went out and disappeared and I remember we we about seven o'clock uh, we noticed he was gone it was just like wow man it was a very serious thing and we tried to do a rescue that night it just it was just so dangerous the snow was such that I've never seen snow anything like it. If you faced it for an instant, it would plug up your nose, your ears, your, your parka would literally fill up, and it was so powerful. And the wind was so strong, and that, that strong wind with the, with, the, with the weight of that snow had, uh, had a real reaction. So I called the rescue up because at 10, it was like, like I said, we were going to lose people. But um, we ended up the next day, um, we did find them. Uh, about uh, 11 o'clock or so. Was, uh, I could tell you a little bit more about that story, but we got to get back to the uh, homestead. This is uh, the end of uh, the Murney here. The Russian, we stopped at the R Russian base, and they had planned the whole winter for this arrival. They had music going, you know, classical music, a finish line, and uh, they baked bread. And uh, this is the ending here. And um, this is John Lee and I. Embracing, because here we are, we, we, we met in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. We had this dream to do this expedition. And then the responsibility of raising the money, your sponsors, the media, we did a huge education. All that is just super, I mean, it's so much responsibility. And then keeping, bringing everybody back alive, the dogs, and especially the press and the media, they would, they would uh, we, we had 13 of the, uh, international press came in. They came in through a Russian base and they bribed the pilots to, to fly them and they got them to Murney to here in a storm, in that storm. 
and the and there was a big plane. They were flying. They couldn't see the, they couldn't see anything, and uh, the you know the co-pilot had his head out the window, and they they passed everybody a pencil and paper to to, to write their last words on. I mean, literally, they said write it and put it uh, on the pocket by your heart. <laughs> And, uh, and they, they were flying around, and the pilot just got a, a glance, glimpse of it and went straight down and crash-landed the plane. I mean, it was just a mess. Nobody got hurt. But it was all this, you know, I, I was more worried about the press and the flying. The flying is more dangerous than the expedition. But here, John Lee and I were, it was over with. The responsibility, I mean, this was the, by far the biggest moment of my life. I mean, I was like this balloon just rising up. But it did take two years of work um, to, uh, I set up an office in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, we had the first convening uh, a year later for the treaty. Uh, George Bush, uh, senior, did not sign it. Um, uh, I'd met him a number of times. I knew him personally. Uh, he was surrounded, uh, his chief of staff was uh, Sununu, uh, anti-environmentalist, and he kept anything environment away from the president. He didn't know what was going on. So they reconvened again in Madrid, uh, a, a huge effort, international thing, and he didn't sign again. And I was able to get him a letter uh, through, our, through Dave Durenberg, who was a uh, senator at that time, and uh, various people that we knew that got it to his desk. And I wrote along with Kathy DeMall, who was our manage, office manager, and um, I had, his aide was sort of our spy that would you know, tell us what was going on. He said, I don't know what's in that letter, but when he read that, he, changed, he stood up and he totally changed his mind. And uh, so just two weeks later, on the 4th of July at Mount Rushmore, he signed. And that was preserving Antarctica. So that was mission accomplished. So uh, I got a short video here before we quit. Oh, this is the end. Oh, it was almost, um, the ship came in. This was not an icebreaker, a Russian ship to pick us up. But then the wind shifted and the ice came in. And, the, and this thing barely got out to the open ocean. So it looked like we were going to spend the next nine months eating potatoes with the Russians. And then the wind changed, fortunately. We were able to get this thing in again. We managed to get out. And I remember being on that ship. The first two days, we were still in iceberg country. And I just, I was not relaxed at all. I never, when I left Antarctica, I never looked around. But I remember on the third day, we came up on board in the morning. And it was swarm. And, and it was just like a total relief. Uh, this is a short video here. Oh, see if we got it here. Uh oh, there we are. Uh, the first piece here doesn't have sound. We're flying in here to the um, to make our landing. This is at the very first day. We had actually six flights went over. This is the Larson um, B uh, Larson A ice shelf. Uh, this was laid down on, in uh, about twelve thousand years ago, the last ice age. It's a thousand feet thick, um, and it was the largest. Uh, a land feature I've ever seen, and when we uh, and I thought, well, you know, this is around permanently. But then, you know, uh, 2002, 12 years later, this whole thing disintegrated, and it was just amazing. This is a, I think we, this is the very first moment here. Very real patient, well-trained dogs. Sit, sit. Whoa, 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 there, dog. <laughs> we breed the dogs for that attitude. So this is how we travel. Nobody rides a sled. We're not, we don't even have a place to ride. Ten dogs, you know, about 1,200 pound loads. And um, 
And the dogs here, the, I mentioned the fur. He's listening to the dogs, his eyes. He's listening to what's going on when we're filming him. The other one. But, you know, they're just an incredibly strong animal. And then they're, they're a little wild. We, we farm them out, the young kids when they're pups, but uh, they love people. And uh, they love people sometimes more than anything else other than pulling a sled. And then they like snow too. So they're, they're bred. I mean, they're doing their thing when they're on expeditions. They live for this moment. And uh, this is on the Larson uh, AI shelf. Uh, this, this broke up in 1998. This is uh, the 24-hour, you know, the sun isn't up, but this is that twilight. Uh, we were very fortunate. We didn't have too many storms the first month because we were at sea level. And it gave the dogs uh, a chance to grow their hair back because the, you know, they came up in the summer cold. And that was a big issue with us here. And um, you can see here, uh, traveling by sled, uh, by, uh, always on skis. We're, we skied the whole distance. We couldn't walk. Uh, couldn't walk because when we were pushing, we'd, you know, of course, be out without skis. And this is a class we'll see this year. Grass is one thing, but it was really the super cold weather. We had six months, 30 below, 30 mile an hour wind average, so it was continual, and it was really the wind. And um, you get used to it. And uh, this is John Lee, my partner. He was a diplomat. He brought along uh, Soviet Union and China. China. We were not very friendly status with China uh, back in the 80s, and then. Um, I was in charge of the uh, expedition, raising the money, training the dogs, uh, and also uh, uh, the leadership on the, on the team. This is a real serious crevassed area. So what I'm doing is I'm putting these blankets, the, the, the dog blankets, underneath the harness. The problem if the dog falls in a crevasse, if he falls off the harness, that's it. So th this prevents the dogs from slipping. And um, we use these, and then this is a dog in a really deep bottomless crevasse. We don't see anything. Something you didn't see in the 80s, uh, the American and the Soviet plane, uh, flags working together. Get 
No, no dogs got hurt on this. This is on the Larson P. Actually, it's an unusual day because the wind is not blowing and all the snow is on the ground. When the wind blows, the snow is in the air. The loose snow, that is. This is a 50 blow. And um, you can see the dog's breath. And this is our normal. This is actually a good day because we're able to see everybody. But Victor uh, skied front in the front. Uh, the, uh, he f skied the full uh, distance, and that keeps the attention of the dogs a little bit more. Uh, giving a, you, it's hard to run a lead dog because they can't hear you, and there's too much tension on a dog to be giving him order, orders all day. So the skiing in front works the best. And this is the area of inaccessibility. This is our, our normal paces this way. This is the coldest place on earth, 11,000 feet, 11,300 where we're at here. This is the last, last uh, piece of film here. Great. Let's see what time we got here. We got to kind of, we got to get out to the center. Yeah, 8:30, boy. Um, I don't know. Do we have time for questions? It's getting late, or maybe. Okay, one or two. Anybody have a question? Yeah, we, you know, for those four months, we had an average 23 and a half miles a day. And uh, so that we, did, we actually did that. So in the storm, so you, sometimes you would, wouldn't, depending on the weather and so forth, it would vary from five miles to maybe 15, 20. Yes? Frostbite? No, I would freeze our face because the problem with the, and the face is you're, if you, cover up your your cheeks and your nose it fogs up your glasses so there's always a your cheeks and your nose are the areas that get it but that's not a not a functional thing if you freeze your face but i've never i've never fro fro froze my feet or or uh fingers so i you know it's just you have to know what you're doing we use the muckalock which really helps out but but if you freeze your toes good that's your end of your exploring days so it's a Good incentive to really be careful, but you're always thinking all the time. You're always paying attention to your toes, and you're wiggling them or whatever. You know, a lot of times you don't have to think about them, but in the real cold you do. And then you know we're moving too, we're moving, and that gives us a lot of. Uh, you get you stay warm that way moving. It's actually colder at lunch. Lunch is the worst time for me, and uh, so I, you know I I have a couple of books and posters for sale out there and then uh, we, we want to talk individually we'll kind of do that quickly and then we'll we'll head out yeah, let's give Will a big round of applause. thank you